0: Welcome to CUCC's Sermons for Everyone. No matter who you are or where you find yourself on life's journey, we're glad you've tuned in, and we hope you find meaning in this week's sermon. For five weeks now, We've been diving deeper into the book of Judges, spending time with local leaders who God raises up to rescue the Israelites from foreign nations, and maybe even more so to to rescue them from their own destructive behaviors. At times, they've been entertaining stories, funny even. But if we're being honest, I've had to work hard to make some of them funny so as to deflect from the truth that they're really quite violent and graphic stories. And you can only read so many violent and graphic stories before you begin asking bigger questions about their their purpose, their value. One of the challenges when reading the book of of the Judges is, is identifying who the hero is, right? Whose example are we supposed to be following in some of these stories? Is it Ehud, Deborah, Gideon? I'm not, I'm not so sure about all that. And then if you keep going, you might begin to ask questions about God's role in all of it. Or you might begin to wonder, whose side is, is God on all the time? We, we keep reading that God raises up a foreign nation to punish the Israelites. And then we read the Israelites, once they've suffered enough, God raises them up to punish the foreign nation... It's as if everybody gets their turn of of being empowered, then punished, and punished, and then empowered, right? Or at least least that's how they understood the dynamics at the time. Uh, The only way to get around these dark and violent stories is to not read them, which has been the primary strategy of the church throughout history, (laughs) but not here. We're big kids, trying to develop big kid face, so we read it all together. Now, this week, it sort of marks the beginning of the end, or at least the end of the cycle of the judges. From this point on, things don't really get fixed anymore. There's no that people cry out to the Lord, and then the Lord rescues them. The cycle is turned into a bit of a spiral, and we're going we're gonna to still read it. So last week, we read of Gideon's extremely improbable victory over the Midianites. I may have even compared this lopsided affair to the bears beating the Bills on Christmas Eve. However, shortly after the service, Well let's just say the Bears' odds got a little bit better. So lesson learned. Don't taunt rival teams from the pulpit. Wish someone would have taught me that in seminary. Needless to say, Gideon was victorious. And following the battle, he retires back to the countryside where his family is from. He finds himself several wives to settle down with, and they have several children to carry on the family name. This week we read from Judges chapter 8 and 9. We'll start in verse 28. During Gideon's lifetime, the land had peace for 40 years. Jerubbaal, son of Joash, That is Gideon. It's a little name change in the ninth chapter. But Gideon went back home to live. He had 70 sons of his own, for he had many wives. His concubine, who lived in Shechem, also bore him a son whom he named Abimelech. Gideon, son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of his father Joash. No sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the Baals, foreign gods. They set up Baal Berith as their god, and they did not remember the Lord their god who had rescued them from the hands of their enemies on every side. They also failed to show any loyalty to the family of Gideon despite all the good things he had done for them. Abimelech, son of Gideon, went to his mother's brothers in Shechem and said to Had them and all his mother's clan, ask all the citizens of Shechem, which is better for you, to have all 70 of Gideon's sons rule over you or just one man? Remember, I am your flesh and blood. When the brothers repeated all this to the citizens of Shechem, they were inclined to follow Abimelech for they said, he is related to us. They gave him 70 shekels of silver from the temple of Baal, and Abimelech used it to hire reckless scoundrels who became his followers. He went to his father's home and on one stone murdered his 70 brothers, the sons of Gideon. But Jotham, the youngest son of Gideon, escaped by hiding. Then all the citizens of Shechem gathered beside the great tree at the pillar of Shechem to crown Abimelech king. And we're going to pause the reading for just a bit because this thing is falling apart and fast. And today's story, it, it has a different feel to it. Right? There's some missing parts of the cycle. There's some missing character. There is no God character in the story of Abimelech. Abimelech becomes king, ruler, judge, not because God raised him up, but he talked his way. He killed his way into power. It's been tricky enough finding the good news in some of these previous stories. Is there anything good to be found in the story of Abimelech? While sitting with this story, I found myself thinking about the folksy wisdom that cheaters never prosper. I was immediately reminded of playing cards with my sister-in-law, who both regularly cheats and prospers. So which one is it? Do cheaters prosper? Do nice guys always finish last? Will integrity ensure victory, or do you need to be a little cutthroat to get ahead in the world? and in Abimelech's case, literally, (laughs) cutthroat. What are we supposed to do when the bad guy wins? Right, Hollywood doesn't prepare us well for this scenario. People don't pay to see a movie where where evil wins in the end and everything falls apart. It's not fun, it's not inspiring. In fact, it kind of messes with our worldview. Many of us, we... We construct a a moral compass of sorts, a a way in which we choose to live in the world and we're met with conflict when someone who seemingly believes the opposite of everything we do acts in a way that is complete contrast to the way we do and yet they still end up at the top. How are we supposed to deal with, with an Abimelech becoming king? I'm sure these are all questions that Jotham, Abimelech's youngest and only surviving half-brother asked himself and and stewed on in the wake of of such loss. And while he didn't return with an army or plans for vengeance, Jotham does return in chapter 9, but he comes with a fable. Let's keep reading where we left off. As we already read, then all the citizens of Shechem gathered beside the great tree at the pillar in Shechem to crown Abimelech king. When Jotham was told about this, he climbed up on the top of Mount Gerizim and shouted to them, listen to me, citizens of Shechem, so that God may listen to you. One day, the trees went out to anoint a king for themselves. They said to the olive tree, be our king. But the olive tree answered, should I give up my oil, by which both God and humans are honored, to hold sway over the trees? Next, the tree said to the fig tree, come and be our king. But the fig tree replied, should should I give up my fruit, so good and sweet, to hold sway over the trees? Then the tree said to the vine, come be our king. But the vine answered, should I give up my wine? Which cheers both God and humans just to hold sway over the trees. Finally, the tree said to the thorn bush, come and be our king. The thorn bush said to the trees, if you really want to anoint me king over you, come take refuge in my shade, but if not, then let fire come out of the thorn bush and consume the cedars of Lebanon. And then Jotham, Jotham fled into the hillside. In Jotham's fable, the trees all take a turn refusing the invitation to become king, where the thorn bush jumps at the opportunity to take control, and, and before he's even finished introducing himself, is already has already begun using threats of violence, right, to maintain power. That's how the story of Abimelech plays out. Like the thorn bush in the fable, Abimelech goes on a rampage, attacking and destroying local villages. He wipes out a community and then scatters salt on the ground to ruin their soil, to keep them from farming. He he attacks another town. And when all the people run and hide in the tower, he burns it down with everyone inside. Abimelech, the thorn bush, unleashes rage on the surrounding people. However, it turns out that like Hollywood, even the book of Judges doesn't let the bad guy win forever. So let's read the conclusion of Abimelech's rotten reign in chapter 9, verse 50. Next, Abimelech went to Thebes and besieged it and captured it. Inside the city, however, was a strong tower to which all the men and women, all the people of the city had fled. They'd locked themselves and climbed up on the tower roof. Abimelech went to the tower and attacked it, but this time as he approached the entrance of the tower to set it on fire, a woman dropped an upper millstone on his head and cracked his skull. That's why we let the kids out of the service for these parts. Hurriedly, he called to his armor bearer, draw your sword and kill me so that no one can say a woman killed me. So a servant ran him through and he died. And the Israelites saw that Abimelech was dead and they all went home. This is the end of Abimelech and the end of our reading this morning. So what do we do with Abimelech? What do we do when a thorn bush becomes king? Let's return to Jotham's fable for a second. As it's a pointed political satire contrasting Abimelech and, and his self-serving, violent, and destructive ways with that of the big three. The olive tree, the fig tree, and the vine A modern reader might miss the meaning behind the big three, but the original audience would have not. The olive tree, the fig tree, and the vine were the symbols of blessing. Oil, food, and drink, the gifts of God for the people of God. From the psalmist to the prophets, even the parables of Jesus, The olive tree, the fig tree, the vine were regarded as the greatest of the trees because of what they have to offer. Anointing oil that honors God and humans, fruit that adds sweet nourishment to life, drink that adds cheer and joys to every room it enters. In the fable, the olive tree, the fig tree, and the vine easily pass up the, the temptation of becoming king they don't even think twice about the opportunity they find their identity in giving instead of taking and in this reworking of the game it means that despite not becoming king they never lose you see the thorn bush only wins when we define winning as being on top it's having the most stuff or, or being able to control those around us. But, but when winning is reimagined as, as the freedom to honor, to bless, to add joy into the world, there's only one way to the top, and it's, it's through giving our gift. Cheaters never prosper has nothing to do with playing cards or getting elected. It's a statement about the soul. And about the condition of our heart. Sure, the thornbush might become king from time to time, but that doesn't mean that they're winning. There are people who treat every interaction as a quest to find out what what you can do for me. It's the way of the thorn bush. And it's a fast track to, to pain and isolation. Jotham's fable, it encourages us to take up the way of the olive tree, the way of the fig tree, the way of the vine. You see, each one of us has something greater than an earthly crown. It's a gift or gifts that only we can give. Like the olive tree, the fig tree, the vine, we can bypass the way of pain and isolation by by identifying our gifts and then giving them freely. Instead of what can you do for me, we choose to interact with the world from a place of what can I do for you? That's how we keep thorn bushes at bay. That's how we keep our gift alive. And so the real question or the sole question to, to let our minds wander with this week is what, what is your gift? What can you give? What can you offer? How might you honor, bless, add some joy and cheers to the world? In the Christian tradition, sometimes we speak of, of spiritual gifts, things that, that every member bring to a community, things that, that everyone can offer the world. And maybe, maybe you are a truth teller you see things that other people brush under the rug and you speak truth to help those around you deal honestly with themselves, with each other. Maybe you're an encourager. You build people up by the, the use of your words and your deeds. You're drawn to people who need a little extra love and, and you offer it in such genuine ways. Maybe you have a gift of wisdom and knowledge where other people get distracted and and overwhelmed by a problem or the situations of the world. You somehow can see a way through it. Maybe you're a healer. You're in tune with people's pain and ailments, and you know what to do. You know how to respond. You bring healing on so many levels and in situations where the rest of us feel helpless. Maybe you're a servant. You don't like the spotlight. You don't like to be recognized, but you love making things run smoothly. You love to offer support and hard work to the visions and dreams of others. We keep going, maybe you're a leader a prayer warrior, a gatherer of people. Maybe you're a host, an entertainer, a really good friend. The way of the olive tree, the fig tree, the vine, the way of giving instead of taking, it's so simple. And yet it's so countercultural at times. The better we get at, at naming and recognizing our gift, the, the easier it is to say no to opportunities that that don't involve giving it. It doesn't matter how great the opportunity is. Someone might even offer to make you king. But if it jeopardizes the giving of your gift, it will not be fulfilling. It will not contribute to to a life of purpose and meaning. This is tried and tested wisdom, my friends. The great teacher in the book of Proverbs says, "One, one gives freely yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched and the one who waters will himself be watered. Or as St. Francis famously prayed, O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love For it is in giving that we receive. It's in pardoning that we are pardoned. And so this week, I want to encourage you to, to think about your gifts. Friends, what is the oil that you have to offer? What are the fruit that only you can grow? What sort of drinks can you bring to the party to offer cheers and joy to the world? Giving of ourselves is the way of faith. It is the way of Jesus. The one who entered our world, took on the cycles of of our pain, put himself in the place of servant, choosing to wash the feet of his students instead of campaigning for power. The communion table is a table of blessing. Upon it are symbols of of the gifts of God for the people of God. It's at this table that we're reminded of the way of Jesus, the way of selfless giving. It's at this table that we are nourished for our journey, inspired to to press on, commissioned to find ways to give back to the world around us. You have a gift. You are a gift. Abimelech's a hot mess, and next week's character is not much better. Sorry, Pat, I left you with them. Mm-hmm. So let's not be like them. Let's not take on the way of the thorn bush. Instead, let us be like the olive tree, the fig tree, the vine, naming our gifts and then giving them freely to all that we encounter. Amen.